This is MIT Technology Review. These days, it's pretty hard to imagine a world without microchips. There could be more than a thousand of them just in your car. And they also power the devices that run our homes, our jobs, help us stay fit, and so much more. But ongoing shortages and geopolitical struggles make the future of their production anything but straightforward. I'm Jennifer Strong, and this week we're coming to you from the MIT Media Lab at Tech Review's Future Compute Conference. Hey, everybody. Thank you for being here. I know it's the end of the day. But I can think of few topics as relevant to us right now as chips and the ongoing chip war. So we're going to kick it off with that. In the US and China have been in this decades-long battle to control what's become the world's most critical resource. And our first speaker wrote the actual book on it. So Chris Miller is the author of Chip War and an associate professor at Tufts University. Chris, welcome to Future Compute. All right, grab a seat here. Thank you. You know, you said the chip industry now determines both the structure of the global economy and also the balance of geopolitical power. So you know, it takes a second to kind of let that really sink in, right? But it feels like a good jumping off point for this massive topic. What do you think? Well, if you look from an economic perspective, it's not just that the almost all of global GDP today runs on semiconductors. It, it's right. not just smartphones or PCs. It's, it's all industries, almost all types of manufactured goods other than the simplest right. of goods we produce have semiconductors of some sort inside. But it's also huge trade flows. So China today spends as much money importing chips each year as it spends importing oil. And so you can't understand the structure of the world economy without putting semiconductors at the center of your analysis. And, and that's true for economic issues, but it's also increasingly true when defense ministries and intelligence agencies think about the future of the types of systems they're looking to procure. Because what they know is that over the past half century, one of the key forces that's transformed the way militaries fight or the way intelligence agencies spy has been computing power. And that's been true historically, but it's even more true now as they look forward to the type of systems they think will define power over the coming decades. Yeah. I mean, you said China is about 10 years behind, right? And You've also said it won't succeed by pouring more money into this either. And in the background, we're seeing more restrictions on exports to China. What options does China have here? Well, I think China's in a, a difficult position, to be honest, because when you look at the tech stack, China's got a lot of companies that have been very successful in um, providing services for consumers. There's mm -hmm. a vast domestic market, so huge uh, amounts of money to be made there. But deeper down, China's still quite reliant on uh, imported uh, uh, chips and on foreign providers for enterprise software, for example. And so as China's been pushing over the last decade to cut out its reliance on foreign imports, and since 2014, uh, President Xi Jinping has identified semiconductors as something that China wants to import less of and produce more of domestically. There's been billions of dollars poured into the China ship industry. And there's been some spheres where China's made real progress, mm -hmm. but a lot of spheres where China remains really critically dependent on imported tools, imported software, imported materials. And these are exactly the types of components that are being cut off right now by US, Japanese, and European regulation. I mean, and they've had their own version of a CHIPS Act 
you know, for a very long time. But thinking about the CHIPS Act here, this is mostly in response to the fact that manufacturing runs off chips coming from Taiwan, right? What are you watching for with the CHIPS Act, the U.S. CHIPS Act? And do you think it'll achieve its objectives? Well, I think most of the attention is going to the incentives to produce semiconductors domestically. And there you already see a major increase in investment in chip-making facilities. That's sort of understandable, though. It's, it's not surprising if you right. give companies money to build a facility, they'll build more facilities. I think there are, there are two questions that are less certain right now. One is, after the government has spent down the $39 billion it plans to spend on the chip industry, Will the companies that open new facilities as a result of the CHIPS Act keep investing in those facilities over the long run? That's still uncertain. The second uncertainty is on the R&D funding, because a quarter of the funds in the CHIPS Act go to workforce development or R&D. How will this funding be structured, and what will the impact be over the longer run? Historically, the US government, through DARPA, through National Science Foundation, has been a huge investor in semiconductor technologies. And we're seeing even more money being put into this uh, right now, uh, largely via the CHIPS Act. And so whether or not these new research funds produce new technologies 10 or 20 years down the road is going to be critical to its success over the long run. Mm. I want to hear you talk about Taiwan, of course, deemed irreplaceable. But how does all the geopolitical tension impact the sector? Well, there's no doubt that across the chip industry, companies are taking political tensions more seriously, no doubt about that. Uh, and we've seen lots of governments, not just the US, but Europe, Japan, Korea, Singapore, India, investing a lot of money in their chip industries too, because the entire electronic supply chain is actually beginning uh, to shift. It's, it's not only the chip level, it's also the electronics uh, assembly level and the simpler components that go in, you're seeing major shifts in investment patterns and major shifts in assembly as well. So if you look at where servers are assembled today versus 10 years ago, there's a major reduction in China's market share, major increase in Mexico's uh, market share, which is driven largely by these, uh, these uh, issues of political tension. And I think that's only going to increase so long as there's concerns about security of supply in and around the Taiwan Straits. Which will be forever? <laughs> I mean. uh, for the is a long time, but for the foreseeable future, I, you know, I think the industry is still adjusting. Yeah. Five years ago, if you'd asked most people in the industry to what extent the supply chain would shift due to these geopolitical mm -hmm. factors, I think almost everyone in the industry would have underestimated the scale of shifts that have taken place. And so whether it's at the chip level or at the companies that are consuming chips at their level, everyone is still catching up to the extent to which politics is running ahead of their expectations. Mm. So is the chip war winnable? Well, I, certainly the competition is, is winnable by someone. The question is who's going to win. And I think if you look at this solely in a country level, you'll mm -hmm. miss the complexity because there are companies within countries that are competing. There are different chip architectures that are competing for different use cases. There are uh, different materials that are competing for uh, different use cases. And so if you've just got a simple model of which country's going to win, you're going to get a simplistic answer that's not going to tell you much. And I think if you... Mm -hmm ask yourself which companies or which, uh, which uh, business models are going to win. It's a much more interesting set of dynamics to look at. 
please go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, so I, I think the, the first big shift that we are, are seeing is that more and more companies are designing their own chips. And this has been happening for some time, but it's really only accelerating. And one of the interesting aspects of the Chips Act that we're going to see is a lot of money going into driving down the cost of chip design. Right now, designing a leading-edge chip is just brutally expensive. It costs $100 million to design a leading-edge chip. And that means only a couple of companies can do it. But there's a lot of focus on trying to find ways to drive down the cost of chip design. If that happens, more and more companies will do it. Today, it's just the big cloud computing companies that can afford to design their own chips. But in the future, auto companies, industrial, there's a lot of potential use cases out there, um, if in fact that's possible. I think the second big shift is you know, Moore's Law is slowing, no doubt about it. And we often forget when Gordon Moore defined Moore's Law, he had two facets. One was the computing power per chip. The second was the cost per transistor. And cost per transistors plummeted from 1965 until around 2015. And since then, there's been a much less clear rate of decline, or maybe even, by some estimates, the decline is completely stopped. And as that changes, there's going to be more reliance on, on new designs, new architectures, new yeah. packaging capabilities to uh, provide the computing increases that we demand on when what we demand when transistor shrinkage gets harder and harder and more expensive. Sure. I mean, continuing to look towards the future here, the shortages of the last couple of years in autos were largely super simple chips, but those chips aren't the future, as you've been alluding to. Maybe you can go a little deeper on what you're watching for going forward. Well, I, I think it's, if you ask what chips are the future, it's actually a hard question to answer because on the one hand, we are all counting on better processor chips, better chips for training AI, and that's going to happen. But the more computing we produce, the more demand there is for simpler chips to put around the computing. So uh, cars are the best example of this. Today, a new car will have a 1,000 chips on average inside of it. And there's a couple of sophisticated chips managing the semi-autonomous driving features, but there's a whole lot of simple chips making the windows go up and down. Right. There's actually more simple chips in cars as every year passes. Um, which is which is counterintuitive, um, but which is very clearly the trend, and that's true for consumer devices. That's true really a, a, across the um, the use cases of devices that are using semiconductors. And so, actually, I think advances in computing open up new use cases that then encourage systems designers to not only plug in the most advanced processor, but also to plug in all sorts of other types of chips that provide the communications, the sensing, uh, et cetera, that we want. Uh, on our devices. And so that's a dynamic that makes it actually harder to predict what our demand will be for sort of lagging edge ships in 10 years time. You'd think it would be lower because it's lower tech, but actually that hasn't really been the trend. I mean, I'm naive here to just assume we'll get that part sorted out. As, you know, <laughs> we'll pick up manufacturing of the easy very easy bits. But yeah. um, we're going to take some questions from the audience in just a moment here. And definitely if you're online, I can see them if you send them on in too. What do you see as the greatest challenge? I mean, there's a lot of them. What do you see as the greatest challenge to the industry? You know, I think the, the, the fundamental challenge is can we keep Moore's Law alive? Hmm. Most people take it for granted that we're going to get better and better chips every year. Hmm. Actually, that's not even true. Most people just uh, take for granted the computing power that emerges from chips without even thinking about the semiconductors right. uh, inside. But it's only thanks to just extraordinary investment and extraordinary innovations that we've had Moore's Law persist. And the fact that it's getting harder means we need to try even more intensely to keep it going. That makes sense. Do we have a question? Yes. Chris, thanks for being here. And I recently bought your book. I uh, wanted to ask your thoughts on uh, ASML and extreme ultraviolet lithography. This is a Dutch company that is uh, prevented from selling 
the machines that are necessary for the most cutting edge chips to China. Does that dominance continue? Uh, does China have any way around this? And how is this kind of shaping the geopolitical tensions? Well, I think ASML is one of the most fascinating and impressive uh, companies in the world. They're the only producer today of uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines, and they've spent the last 30 years trying to learn how to build these machines uh, in a way that is um, viable for high-volume manufacturing in a, in a chip-making facility. Right now, I don't think there's anyone who's anywhere close to replicating what ASML can do. And the reason is that these are the most complex machines and the most expensive machine tools humans have ever produced, bar none. <laughs> there are so many components inside of a, uh, a UV machine that ASML doesn't know how many components are inside of it, but it's at least in the many hundreds of thousands. I know, for example, in the there's a laser subsystem in an UV machine that has uh, over 450,000 components. And that's actually the that's one of the less sophisticated subsystems. There's also the flattest mirrors humans have ever made inside of each of these machines. There's an explosion happening constantly at around 40 times hotter than the surface of the sun. I mean, this, this, this is not simple engineering. And the key to what makes ASML's tools work really well is not just that they've worked out all these wild science experiments to get the machine to uh, work once, but that it works almost all the time. And if you think of what do you need the mean time to failure to be in a machine with hundreds of thousands of components, you know, if every, if every component breaks once a year, your machine literally never works. So you've got to have the mean time to failure for your components, including these ultra-complex systems, be in the decades. Uh, and that is just an amount of engineering that is just extraordinarily difficult to replicate. And so if I had to bet, I would bet that ASML is the only uh, really viable producer of EV tools for a long time to come. Now, you know, I think any tool that's been invented once can be invented by somebody else. But the question is going to be, will it be invented at a comparable level of quality hmm. that produces a comparable level of yield in semiconductor manufacturing? And the fact that no one else can do it today, and the fact that it took ASML three decades to figure out how to make the tool work in the first place suggests that this is no easy task. Yeah, no, no doubt. We have a question from our online audience. Tariq is asking, how do you see the future of quantum chip production unfolding? You know, I, 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 I struggle to say anything that intelligent about quantum computing both because I'm really not an expert in quantum computing, but also because there's a chip industry that I, I can study and I know how to talk about, whereas quantum computing is still a prospective industry. Mm -hmm. We all hope it will materialize, but it hasn't materialized in a practical form yet. I think what we do know from the history of classical computing is that the transistor was invented in 1947. It took 11 years for the first integrated circuit to be invented. It took another decade for massive mainframe computers to become widespread in corporate use. Another decade for the first consumer device that used integrated circuits, pocket calculators, in a widespread mm -hmm. way. And another decade to the PC, a decade to the, over a decade to the first smartphone. And so although integrated circuits have been transformative technologies, it took three quarters of a century to play out from the invention of the transistor uh, to where we are today. And so I don't see any reason why, like, why quantum computing won't be any, fat, uh, any slower than, than that. I, I think that actually it will be revolutionary whenever it comes. I'm sure it will come, but it's going to take a long time, I think, to go from the first practical use to uses distributed across data centers and across sure. uses more broadly. We have a question up here in the front. My name is uh, Tim Grant. I, I work at NIST. A couple things I want to say is that First, congratulations on some of the most exquisitely timed book I've ever heard of. It's like any specific thoughts on industrial policy. And secondly, one of the things you talked about in the book was the 
NXP's mastery of the supply chain. And I think that's an under-recognized point that these people, it's not just that they had great engineers and took advantage of a lot of US developed technology, but, but they had they were exquisite masters of a very the world's most complex supply chain with specialty vendors and managed to stitch that together to a dominant position. Yeah, I think that's a critical point, is that you know, when we think of tech, we often think of new inventions, and new inventions mm. are great, but you know, what's critical is high volume manufacturing. And if you look at the companies in the chip industry that are the most successful, the ones that are able to take new inventions and turn them into a product that they've produced right. dozens or millions or hundreds of millions of, and if you ask yourself, you know, why is TSMC the world's leading chip maker today? It's, it's not primarily because they've got brilliant engineers who are good at doing new things, although they can certainly do a lot of that. It's that they're able to take a new thing and do 100 million of them with very high yield, with uh, very high accuracy in terms of the number of uh, chips they try to produce and the number that actually work. And so that skill in high volume manufacturing is absolutely critical. I think that actually ties directly back into the industrial policy question. Because what you find historically is that the US government has been very good at funding basic research and funding prototyping, applied research that's uh, turning an idea into a test product. And that's been great. And, and the National Science Foundation does it at the basic level. DARPA has done a lot of that at sort of the prototyping level. But the next step, which is not something I don't think government is going to be able to do well, is turning a prototype into a product that is sold to a million people. And that's what the private sector has done brilliantly. And if you look at the key chip firms that have emerged in the US from the earliest days of the chip industry, like Fairchild Semiconductor, yeah. what they did a very good job of was benefiting from government support. Their first customers were NASA and the US military. But then taking these small batch contracts, because NASA didn't need to buy a lot of chips, they needed to buy a small number to put in the Apollo spacecraft's guidance computer. And then taking that technology and pivoting it to the commercial market, where to everyone's surprise, there was a market that was 100 or 1,000 times larger than uh, commercial providers. And there was a great interview I did over the course of my research with someone who said, you know, it's true that there are high margins uh, on certain types of defense production, but no one's ever been a, made a billionaire by selling to the US military. Mm. And I, I think there's a, real, there's a real profound insight in there, which is that if you want to produce something by the millions, and if you want to become uh, a tech tycoon, you've got to do it by accessing civilian markets. And, and that's the balance that needs to be struck in industrial policy. There's no doubt government plays a role, but there's also no doubt the market plays the key role. We have another online question. We have a lot of online questions, actually. But this one from Piero, he wants to go back to talking about less complex chips and ask you if China is still behind when we speak of those. There's many different types of less, less complex chips. <laughs> Broadly speaking, there are a number of different countries, including China, that can produce uh, lagging edge logic chips, for example. Um, and China's been pouring tons of money into building out its production capacity for lagging edge chips. A lot of the capacity that China is building out has not yet come online. It will come online over the next couple of years. Mm. And so I think we should actually expect some trade tension to emerge when it does come online. Mm. We're going to have a huge capacity increase, and the question will be uh, who will end up buying these chips, if anyone. And historically, when China has brought lots of capacity online in new segments of the economy, whether it's solar panels or electric vehicles, that has induced trade disputes because other countries don't want to give a market share uh, to China. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we had more discussion of trade tension in lagging edge chips precisely as Chinese capacity comes online and challenges existing firms in Taiwan and Japan and Europe for market share. We're in our final minute already, this blew by. What is something we didn't get to that you feel like we really should, given so many things that we could talk about next? 
well, we've only scratched the, the surface of, of, of this issue. I think the other key development that most people, perhaps outside of this room, outside of this room, don't fully understand is the relationship between semiconductors and training AI systems. Yes. And I think the the that popular discussion is going to understand more of this over the coming years because debates about regulating AI, I think, will inevitably bring in data centers and the chips inside of data centers. And my sense is that the cloud computing industry and the chip industry is not at all ready for what happens when politicians come knocking on their doors asking, what are they doing to contribute to the regulation of AI? And I suspect this will be a real challenge for both the uh, cloud computing industry and the chip industry to, uh, to deal with over the coming years. Absolutely. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by me with Emma Silicons and Anthony Green. It's edited by Matt Honan, directed by Aaron Underwood, and mixed by Garrett Lang. The show was recorded in front of a live audience at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with special thanks to Amy Lammers and Brian Bryson. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.